Thanks very much. Well, I'm glad to have the opportunity to um, talk to you all. Um, as you can see, the title of my talk is The End of Humanitarian Intervention, Question Mark, uh, Norms and International Politics After uh, 9-11. So in essence, what I want to do uh, is talk about the issue of changing uh, patterns of uh, military intervention uh, post-9-11. Uh, a fair bit of what I will say will be reporting back on some um, empirical work I've been doing looking at the way in which uh, patterns of military intervention uh, are changing internationally since 9-11. Um, but at the end, I also want to um, add some theoretical reflections which will really um, focus on the place of norms in international politics and the way in which norms uh, change uh, in international politics. Um, I guess my basic thesis is that uh, if one asks the question, the end of humanitarian intervention, um, I come to perhaps the somewhat surprising answer, um, no. Um, I think an instinctive first take might uh, lead one to conclude, looking at 9-11, looking at uh, Afghanistan and Iraq that were at the end of the uh, era of um, humanitarian interventions that we saw in the 1990s. Uh, and I want to argue that in a subtle way that's not the case and also that that tells us um, some important things about the way in which uh, norms in relation to the use of force in international politics uh, have evolved and are continuing to uh, evolve. The first part of the story, I guess, is really a pretty um, familiar one. I think most of you will probably be uh, familiar with the uh, debate on uh, humanitarian intervention uh, that emerged during uh, the 1990s. Uh, and you can see there the list of uh, standard examples that are used to illustrate um, the argument that we saw a significant shift towards uh, humanitarian intervention in international politics uh, during the 1990s and perhaps running uh, into the year 2000 with the uh, somewhat more obscure uh, British intervention in uh, Sierra Leone in 2000. I don't propose to say anything um, very specific about the individual uh, cases there since I think a lot has already been uh, said and written about those. Um, I think there is a case that there was indeed an emerging practice of humanitarian intervention uh, in the 1990s. And you can see uh, there on the slide some of the uh, key uh, components of that practice, if you like, uh, as it emerged during um, the 1990s. Um, obviously, one of the key breaks being uh, the increased willingness of uh, the international community in general, but perhaps uh, major... Uh, Western powers to infringe uh, the sovereignty of other states in ways in which they hadn't perhaps been willing to do to the same degree, at least in the past. Um, secondly, the contrast between uh, the humanitarian interventions of the 1990s uh, and more traditional uh, UN peacekeeping, uh, which in essence focused on monitoring uh, ceasefires once those ceasefires have been put in place. Um, Thirdly, the argument that behind those various interventions that were listed on the previous uh, stage, there were indeed uh, significant and substantial uh, humanitarian uh, motivations. 
Uh, and finally, one point which I think isn't always um, focused on sufficiently, but if you look at all of those uh, interventions, um, one key point was that, in essence, uh, one or four, one or more of four uh, major uh, powers took uh, a leading role. So, in essence, the United States, Britain, France, and Australia uh, were amongst the key uh, actors in terms of actually uh, undertaking humanitarian interventions uh, and providing the military uh, capability that made that uh, possible. The idea of humanitarian intervention as it emerged in the 1990s was obviously problematic um, in a number of ways. To start with, obviously, assessing uh, states' uh, motivations is uh, inherently uh, problematic. Uh, and, of course, there are arguments that states were very often uh, intervening uh, for more traditional national interest type reasons rather than humanitarian uh, motivations. If you looked at Haiti, for instance, the obvious argument that uh, the United States acted to uh, prevent an influx of people coming in uh, to the US uh, and so on. Uh, and of course, people also flagged up the example of uh, Rwanda to illustrate there was a large uh, double standard in terms of uh, intervention in some cases and intervent non-intervention, a reluctance to intervene uh, in other situations. Uh, but nevertheless, my uh, conclusion, and one could obviously dispute this, is that there was um, a significant shift towards uh, humanitarian intervention in international politics uh, in the 1990s. What's happened since then? Um, to what extent has 9-11 uh, uh, and the subsequent interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq um, fundamentally altered what could be seen as an emerging uh, trend or an emerging pattern in the 1990s. Uh, are we indeed witnessing, in essence, the end of uh, humanitarian intervention? Um, as a general point, one could argue that post 9-11 and with the war on terror um, in US foreign policy, but also in uh, the foreign policy certainly of other major Western states, the UK, Australia, France, Japan, and so on. Um, there's arguably been a general shift away from uh, more normative concerns like humanitarian intervention back to uh, a focus on narrower national interests uh, and uh, realpolitik. Um, but I'll come back to that point in a few minutes. Um, Secondly, obviously, uh, in terms of uh, doctrinal uh, statements in relation to military intervention, we had um, the Bush administration's idea of uh, preemptive or preventive war. And I recognize, obviously, that there's a distinction between um, the two, but I think that boundary is also blurred. But you can see there uh, the quote from the uh, 2002 uh, U.S. <laughs> Uh, national security strategy, which in a sense formally uh, introduced the idea uh, of preventive war uh, as a more formal part uh, of American uh, strategy. Uh, and there are obvious uh, 
differences between preventive war and humanitarian intervention, although the two could be seen uh, to overlap. What about Afghanistan uh, and Iraq? Um, at various points, President Bush, uh, and especially perhaps the British Prime Minister, uh, Tony Blair, uh, were inclined to cast uh, the interventions in Afghanistan and then in Iraq uh, as uh, humanitarian uh, interventions, arguing that these were interventions undertaken um, to remove uh, brutal regimes and thereby improve the situation uh, of the Afghan and the Iraqi uh, peoples. Uh, I think most analysts uh, suggest that it's not very credible to uh, interpret um, the overthrow of the Taliban uh, or the 2003 intervention in Iraq as humanitarian uh, interventions. Uh, and you can see there are a number um, of obvious points that one can make. There is an argument that, in essence, although uh, President Bush and especially Prime Minister Blair were sometimes um, inclined to use the language of humanitarianism, um, humanitarian motivations were really marginal uh, in driving the interventions in Afghanistan uh, and Iraq. Um, secondly, of course, the reluctance to engage uh, in nation-building uh, and as Donald Rumsfeld um, put it uh, towards the end of 2001, uh, we don't do uh, nation-building. And again, I think if one wanted to argue that uh, the interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, were about humanitarianism, um, some kind of uh, greater commitment to uh, post-conflict peace-building or what's been referred to as nation-building uh, would have been necessary uh, to give that claim some credibility. Uh, in addition, of course, uh, the various elements of disregard for international uh, humanitarian uh, law, the treatment of um, captured combatants, um, Abu Ghraib, uh, and all of that, again, would seem to suggest that uh, humanitarianism was simply not central to uh, the concerns driving the interventions in Afghanistan uh, and Iraq. Um, in addition, also think about um, the five years since 2001 and contrast that with um, the list of humanitarian interventions uh, from the 1990s. And there's a very basic point that there have been no uh, similar uh, large-scale uh, humanitarian interventions by uh, the major Western powers. Uh, and, of course, um, the situations in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, and today in uh, Darfur in the west of Sudan can be held up uh, as examples of the consequences uh, of that reluctance to intervene uh, in humanitarian crises uh, on the part of the uh, major Western powers. Um, so I think there would be, in some senses, a reasonably obvious argument that we're witnessing um, the end of humanitarian intervention uh, and that the story perhaps could uh, end uh, here. Um, but what I want to do next is focus on um, some other trends which have been rather less uh, noticed in the 
uh, direction of peacekeeping uh, and intervention. And three trends in particular, I think, are interesting. Firstly, there's been uh, what I call a return uh, to uh, the UN, and there have been some significant uh, developments in UN uh, peacekeeping and UN missions, which I'll talk about uh, in a second. Uh, secondly, there's been increasing uh, interest in the regionalization of uh, peacekeeping and intervention. And again, I'll look at that. Uh, and thirdly, there's also uh, been uh, a new emphasis on the part of uh, major Western powers, the US, Britain, France, uh, the G8, and so on, uh, in terms of helping um, other states to develop the capacity to undertake uh, peacekeeping uh, and humanitarian uh, operations. So if we take the first of those three trends, uh, take the issue of the return to uh, the UN. Um, people are probably pretty familiar with the idea that there was from uh, about the mid-1980s through to uh, the mid-1990s uh, a major expansion of UN uh, peacekeeping operations uh, and that that expansion of UN peacekeeping operations then fell away uh, in the second half of the 1990s. Um, but what you can see there is that a trend which has been less noticed is that really since uh, about uh, 2000, uh, there's been a return to UN uh, peacekeeping, a series of uh, major new uh, UN uh, peacekeeping uh, operations. Uh, and you can just see uh, the list uh, there, uh, DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, Liberia, Ivory Coast, uh, Haiti, Burundi, uh, Sudan. In Sudan, the operation uh, one's talking about there is the operation in the south of the country uh, following um, the peace agreement uh, in that part of the country uh, and not um, the possible operation uh, in Darfur in the west of Sudan, which uh, may or may not go ahead uh, depending on how uh, the politics relating to that conflict develop. Um, the other point, I think, to note there is clearly uh, the relative size of those operations in terms uh, of uh, the troop numbers. Uh, by historical standards for UN peacekeeping operations, these are relatively large um, operations. The other key thing to note about these is the changing nature of these UN peacekeeping operations. These are very far from uh, traditional uh, UN uh, peacekeeping operations. They're authorized under uh, Chapter 7 uh, of the Charter of the UN, which means that they are authorized uh, to use uh, military force uh, to achieve their mandates. Uh, the relatively light, large size of these operations uh, has flown from that. Uh, and there has been uh, an increased willingness uh, on the part of troop-contributing nations um, to use uh, force. So you've seen uh, circumstances in various uh, situations where 
um, contingents from Pakistan and other third world countries, uh, which you might not traditionally perhaps associate with uh, such willingness to use force and might be more usually associated with the more traditional narrow concep conception of UN peacekeeping, uh, have engaged in combat and firefighting uh, with rebel groups and others in these situations. So there's an important uh, shift in the character and nature uh, of the peacekeeping operations that the UN uh, is undertaking. Add to that another um, remarkable <coughs> development. Um, during the 1990s, of course, there was much debate about the uh, ethical and legal basis for uh, these types of uh, humanitarian interventions. Uh, and various authors uh, and politicians tried to develop some overarching framework which could help to provide uh, a context for these types of uh, operations. And the um, International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty uh, came up with this idea of the responsibility uh, to protect, uh, which in essence argues that uh, states and governments have uh, a responsibility to protect their populations uh, and that when they fail to fulfill that responsibility, uh, the international community itself then has a responsibility to protect those uh, populations. Um, well, last year in September, we had the major uh, UN uh, World Summit, which discussed um, issues relating to the future development and reform uh, of the United Nations. Uh, and you can see there the remarkable uh, quote from that uh, UN World Summit uh, document. Uh, we are prepared to take collective action in a timely and decisive manner, should peaceful means be inadequate and national authorities manifestly fail to protect their populations from genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, and crimes against humanity. Um, if you take a step back, I think this was a truly remarkable uh, statement for uh, the UN to adopt. Uh, it might perhaps not be surprising that countries like uh, the UK, Canada, perhaps the US, Australia, and so on, uh, would be willing to uh, endorse a concept like the responsibility to protect. Uh, but it's far more striking that the UN as a whole, uh, including countries like Russia, China, uh, India, uh, Africa countries, and so on, were all collectively uh, willing to endorse this uh, responsibility to protect uh, concept. Now, of course, how far um, the UN and its member states will be willing to put this uh, declaration uh, into practice uh, remains to be seen. But in terms of um, what you could call, I guess, the politics of soft uh, international law, I think this was a very uh, significant uh, and remarkable uh, development. So if you put that together uh, with this uh, new generation of UN peacekeeping operations, uh, you see, in a sense, a shift uh, within the UN uh, still towards this idea of humanitarian intervention uh, and towards ideas of uh, what has sometimes been termed peace enforcement rather than traditional uh, UN peacekeeping. The second trend, which again I think hasn't received um, 
sufficient attention has been uh, the regionalization of uh, peacekeeping and intervention. So over uh, the last uh, 10 years, um, there has been an increasing shift towards uh, regional organizations taking on um, these tasks uh, of peacekeeping uh, and intervention. Um, what NATO has done has been reasonably uh, well known. I don't think I'll say too much more about that, although the other thing to note there is, of course, the establishment of the NATO uh, response force, which also gives uh, NATO greater capacity to respond, at least in theory, very rapidly to uh, a crisis, including uh, humanitarian crises. Secondly, you've also had uh, the European Union taking on these tasks. And you can see there, uh, in 1999, the European Union um, formally committed itself to establish a common European security uh, and defence policy and then put in place uh, some of the uh, political and military institutions necessary to give that uh, some kind of substance. And of course, for the EU, uh, this was uh, a radical... Uh, an historic step for uh, an institution and a power, if you want to put it in those terms, uh, which had historically been what some observers described as a civilian power uh, rather than a military one. Um, and you can see there that the EU has now also given um, some substance to this, um, taking over uh, the Bosnia mission uh, from NATO uh, towards the end of 2004, uh, and also in 2003, in an interesting uh, example, sending uh, 2,000 primarily French uh, troops to the Democratic Republic of Congo uh, when uh, a particular uh, localised uh, conflict appeared to be uh, flaring up uh, and helping to uh, contain that violence until a larger uh, UN force could be put into the particular region uh, of the DRC. Uh, in addition, the EU has also taken on a range of much smaller operations in places like Macedonia, uh, Georgia in the uh, former Soviet Union, uh, the Aceh province uh, of Indonesia, uh, and so on. Perhaps less well-known uh, has been developments within... Um, the African Union. Uh, and of course, over the last um, few years, we've seen uh, the transition from the old uh, OAU, the Organization of African Unity, to the new uh, African Union. Uh, and one central part of that uh, has been uh, an increased emphasis on taking on the tasks of uh, peacekeeping uh, and intervention. Uh, and again, um, rather like the UN um, World Summit document, which I just uh, mentioned, um, the AU has also taken some pretty significant um, doctrinal steps there. So you can see there uh, in 2002, the Constituent Act, which was the uh, founding document uh, of the African Union, uh, specifically stated the right of the Union uh, to intervene in a member state uh, in respect of grave circumstances uh, namely war crimes, genocide, and crimes against humanity. Uh, and given uh, African states 
um, historic uh, commitment to state sovereignty uh, and their obvious concerns about uh, the possibility of intervention uh, in each other's affairs and the concerns about intervention by uh, external powers. Again, this was really uh, a remarkable development for the AU uh, to accept this principle. Uh, again, you can also see there that the uh, AU has begun to put in place um, institutions to give this some kind of substance, uh, and it's undertaken its first two uh, significant um, peacekeeping missions in Burundi uh, and in the Darfur region uh, of Sudan. Uh, although, of course, people would point out that um, perhaps one of the key lessons from the AU's experience in Sudan uh, has been exactly about the weakness and limitations of the AU response uh, in the face of ongoing uh, violence in Darfur. Uh, nevertheless, overall, there does seem to be uh, a significant trend towards uh, the regionalization of peacekeeping uh, and intervention. Uh, and you can also look to some extent at other uh, regions. You could look, for instance, at the uh, South Pacific, where uh, Australia has uh, led a number of essentially uh, regional operations in some conflicts in the uh, island nations of the uh, South Pacific. A brief word also about a third trend, which has been um, some new developments um, in Western efforts to provide support for uh, other states and other regions to take on uh, the tasks uh, of peacekeeping. And you can see there um, two uh, dimensions to that, really. Um, firstly, there's been practical operational support for uh, missions. So, for example, when uh, ECOWAS, the Economic Community of West African States, uh, intervened in Liberia uh, in 2003, prior to the uh, deployment of the current uh, UN mission there, uh, the United States provided uh, significant support in terms of a uh, joint task force based uh, at the sea just off the coast of Liberia, uh, providing logistical support uh, and an element of coercion uh, or deterrence, if you like. Uh, similarly, today, uh, you see both NATO and the European Union uh, providing various forms of operational support to the AU mission in Darfur in Sudan, in terms of advice, uh, logistics in particular, training, uh, and so on. Um, in addition, there's also been uh, an effort by some of the major Western powers and institutions to uh, support uh, other countries in developing peacekeeping uh, and intervention capabilities. Uh, so if you look at Africa, for example, since about the mid-1990s, uh, the US, uh, the UK, France, but also other uh, smaller Western countries, Canada, uh, Denmark, uh, some of the other Nordic and Scandinavian countries, have had a variety of initiatives to try and support African countries to train their troops in peacekeeping to help them develop um, the logistical capacities necessary for these types of operations as well. Um, in addition, you've had NATO's uh, Partnership for Peace, and one of the elements of the uh, PFP has been NATO working with its various partners in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union to help them to expand their own uh, military capacity to contribute to 
uh, peacekeeping and humanitarian <coughs> operations. Um, in addition, you can see also 2004, there was uh, a G8 uh, action plan which focused on trying to train uh, 75,000 troops for peacekeeping operations uh, over the next five years. So you can see again another uh, broad trend which perhaps hasn't received all that much prominence, uh, which is an effort by Western states to support uh, other states and regional uh, institutions in developing the capacity to contribute to peacekeeping and intervention. Um, quite a lot of that is uh, empirical, really, trying to trace um, some trends that we can see emerging, uh, particularly perhaps uh, since the late 1990s and since 9-11. Uh, but I also think it uh, ties in to some uh, larger uh, conceptual and theoretical questions. And in essence, you can see I would suggest that really Behind all of this is a larger debate about uh, norms in relation to the use of force in international politics. Uh, what kind of norms uh, should govern the use of force in international politics? Uh, but in particular, how uh, and why uh, are those norms uh, changing? Uh, and you can see, in a sense, my uh, broad argument is that uh, it's certainly premature to argue that post 9-11 we've witnessed the end of humanitarian intervention. Uh, and I think the idea of humanitarian intervention is not one uh, that's going to go away. Um, so a number of broader uh, theoretical thoughts on the issues of norms. Um, there's a basic question as to how and why do norms uh, change. Uh, and you can see there the simplest model uh, which one could advance is what I've called there a reactive uh, model, that norms are, in essence, uh, change in response to state behavior. States respond to particular crises or circumstances. Uh, norms follow uh, state practice. Um, If you look at the literature on norms in international politics, though, people talk about the idea of norm entrepreneurs, which I have conveniently misspelled. Uh, I'm sure you'll survive that. Um, and I think this area illustrates very well um, that norm entrepreneurs, um, individuals, uh, key states, international organizations, have played a key role uh, in shaping this uh, emerging shift towards um, humanitarian intervention. Um, if you look at states, for example, Canada, for instance, has played uh, an important role uh, in promoting this idea of humanitarian intervention, and in particular the idea of the responsibility to protect. Um, if you look at international organizations, um, UN and NATO as institutions have promoted some of this idea uh, and you can really, I think, identify uh, individual bureaucrats or senior international civil servants who have acted as key norm entrepreneurs. So if you looked in the um, early to mid-1990s uh, in the Yugoslav conflict, Manfred Werner, who was then uh, the NATO uh, Secretary General, played a key role in really driving the argument that, firstly, the international community 
uh, couldn't simply stand by uh, in the situation that was developing in former Yugoslavia, uh, and that secondly, uh, NATO had an important role uh, to play. Uh, similarly, if you look at um, UN Secretary General Kofi Annan and his speeches over the last few years, again, you see uh, him really driving this idea that the UN has a responsibility to respond uh, and that the UN needs to develop some kind of normative uh, framework. Um, also think about international non-governmental organizations. I mentioned the um, ICISS is the International Commission on Intervention uh, and State uh, Sovereignty. And this was a key uh, body driving uh, this idea uh, of the responsibility to protect. Um, and more recently, obviously, think about the debates surrounding uh, Darfur and the way in which uh, Western governments and the international community more generally have come under uh, strong uh, international pressure uh, to respond to the situation in uh, Darfur. Uh, so I think this whole area does indicate the importance of what can be referred to as norm entrepreneurs, the way in which individual states, political leaders, uh, non-governmental groups and so on can really drive and shape uh, norms uh, in international politics. What about the relationship between power uh, and norms? Do norms in international politics uh, simply uh, flow from uh, and reflect uh, power uh, and constellations of power? Uh, do dominant states determine uh, norms uh, in international politics? Uh, well, again, I think we can draw some conclusions from uh, some of this debate as well. In particular, I think you can look at the way in which there have been uh, competing uh, norms uh, and the way in which those debates surrounding those uh, have evolved. Uh, so you could argue, I think, that post 9-11 there has been a debate or certainly a tension between uh, the US idea uh, of uh, preventive war uh, and the idea uh, of humanitarian intervention uh, which emerged uh, in the 1990s. Um, and I think what's quite striking to me is that um, what I would argue has been the inability of the US to achieve more widespread support for the idea of uh, preventive war. Uh, despite being the dominant power, um, in general, I think there has remained uh, a fairly strong resistance uh, in the international community to the idea of preventive war. And that would seem to me to contradict the idea that uh, dominant states are able to strongly shape, if not determine, uh, norms. Um, Secondly, I think also uh, the persistence of the idea of uh, humanitarian intervention as a norm is also interesting. Um, there is this argument that it's gone away, but as I've tried to suggest, I think the, um, the idea of humanitarian intervention is not one uh, that's going to go away. So um, I think there are interesting issues there around competing norms. Uh, and the other point that I would emphasize there, going back to the role of uh, norm entrepreneurs, if you want to use that language, um, is what I've called there the powerful influence of weak actors. Um, 
Kofi Annan, the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty, uh, Canada as a state, uh, are not leading powers in a uh, power politics sense. But nevertheless, these types of actors, I would argue, have been able to in exert a significant influence on uh, evolving norms within uh, international politics. Um, so I think overall there are some important uh, and interesting uh, issues to try and uh, disentangle in terms of uh, the way in which uh, norms evolve and what we can learn from this debate. Um, a couple of final conclusions. Clearly, um, norms in relation to the use of force in international politics are far from uh, settled. Um, if one saw uh, an emerging practice of humanitarian intervention in the 1990s, um, it's not clear what's going to happen to that uh, practice. Uh, similarly with the idea of preventive war after Iraq. Uh, so you can see there, I've referred to this as kind of road testing, uh, that norms uh, emerge or evolve or are advanced, uh, and then they're, in a sense, road tested uh, in practice. And so, for example, um, the UN operations that we're looking at today have learned some things from uh, the experience of the 1990s. Um, will Iraq effectively have been a kind of road testing of the idea of preventive war uh, that will undermine that idea as a norm uh, because of all the problems uh, associated with it. Um, and of course, the problem also um, of the ongoing gap between uh, norm and practice, if you want. Um, the UN has been willing to declare its support for this idea of the responsibility to protect uh, but whether it's been willing to put it into practice in places like Darfur is obviously very much open uh, to question. Um, so at a broad level, you can see there my final conclusion um, is a very general one, but a significant one, which I think also flows from this debate. Um, I would argue that norms do not simply reflect power. Uh, and if you look at this debate uh, on humanitarian intervention, uh, it shows us that issues of ethics and morality uh, shape international politics uh, in powerful ways. Thank you. So we have some time for, uh, I guess, you know, I believe for a meeting, we have some time for some Q&A. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a good way of putting it, really, because if you looked at a lot of the um, interventions in the 1990s, um, people would argue that in places like Bosnia, Kosovo, and so on, on the one hand, there was a real and significant humanitarian motive, but the major intervening powers also had significant uh, national interests as well. So I think it might be correct to argue that um, when the two coincide... Um, you're more likely to see humanitarian intervention. But when there are only humanitarian uh, motivations and no strategic interests, people would argue 
uh, that one's less likely to see intervention, and you know, DAR4 or DRC would be held up as an example of that. So I, th I think that's right, probably. Okay, um, I mean, I think you're probably a bit harsh on Tony Blair there. If you look back at um, Blair's speeches, I mean, I think the idea that one had to do this in particular because it was in Europe was never the centre um, of his argument. And certainly, I mean, in 1999... Blair advanced what he called the doctrine of the international community, and I think it was very explicitly uh, a global uh, doctrine and a global um, argument. Um, but that being said, I mean, I, th I think you're right that there is, certainly from the European's perspective, a kind of double um, standard. Um, I suppose from an ethical point of view, I think there's a question... Um, to what extent do double standards undermine the very value of a norm um, per se? Um, and I think you know that's an open um, question. Boutros, Boutros Ghali, back in the early mid 1990s, when he was the um, UN Secretary General, was very strongly critical of European states for their willingness to intervene in former Yugoslavia, but not in Rwanda and Africa. Uh, and, and elsewhere. Um, so I think there is a question in a sense perhaps of the, I suppose what one could call norm credibility. Is a norm credible if it is advanced, as you say, as a universal norm, but it's very clear that in practice there are double standards and you know it's kind of applied in some regions um, and not uh, others. Um, I mean, my own view would be that I think you know, most norms are by definition uh, evolutionary uh, and they also create a kind of political uh, momentum of their own. Um, so having advanced um, these arguments, it's much more difficult for 
uh, the international community to do nothing in Darfur. Um, but I, I mean, I think you're right that there is a, ba a basic tension there. And I guess one of the other things that I wanted to highlight, I didn't maybe say as much, is that really I think only four countries, the US, Britain, France, and Australia, um, have the capacity to undertake a large-scale uh, forceful military intervention involving, say, 10 to 20,000 uh, troops. Uh, so that means that the scope for um, larger scale and the most demanding um, humanitarian interventions is severely limited. Um, and if you look at the, um, the African Union, it's developing this African standby force, which will be a force of, uh, I think, 25,000 troops, but that 25,000 troops will be based on five brigades from the 5,000 strong brigades from the different regions of Africa. Those brigades will be composed of, you know, 1,000 troops from South Africa, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So in practice, that's going to mean, um, unless one can really successfully integrate those kind of military forces, which in purely military terms is very difficult, um, the African Union is not going to have the kind of capacity which even say the UK or France or Australia has to, ma to mount a really demanding military operation. So I think you're right also there's a gap between um, rhetoric on the one hand, if you want to put it like that, and emerging kind of soft law uh, and military capacity uh, on the other hand. Yeah, I mean, on, on the first question, I think, you know, the whole um, experience right from the beginning of the 1990s through to today, you know, suggests that, you know, there clearly aren't and there won't be any objective criteria, you know. And I mean, if, you know, if you said, let us just say hypothetically, half a million deaths warrants, you know, a really serious humanitarian intervention, you know, one less is not enough, you know, one more, it makes the difference. So, I mean, I think, you know, in that sense, and again, I mean, if you look at the scale of humanitarian uh, crises, it clearly wasn't, you know, the degree of severity of humanitarian crises was 
a factor in shaping whether there was an international response and the nature of that international response, but it was only one factor. And I think that, that that's very clear. Um, I think on the idea of um, community, um, you're right, there is a basic uh, problem that nearly all um, international organizations operate on a consensus uh, basis. Um, and in a sense, that means that they operate on the lowest common denominator basis. You have to convince uh, every member of NATO, the EU, you know, whatever, um, that um, action is required. Um, I guess, you know, that's obvious that was the rationale behind the Security Council. I think what's quite interesting is that in um, the African case, one of the institutions that's been created is uh, the AU Peace and Security Council. And that actually is rather like uh, the UN um, Security Council in that it is an inner core of, I think, 15 uh, members elected from the general uh, membership of the African uh, Union uh, and empowered to take decisions. And I think it itself takes decisions on maybe a two-thirds majority basis or something like that. So there is an element of trying to... Um, evolve in the African context, institutions that might be capable of taking those types of uh, decisions. Um, but I think, in essence, you know, you want to look at the history of the UN. I mean, there's a trade-off between um, UN as global community and UN as some kind of effective um, international decision-making uh, institution with the Security Council. And I think you're right that, in essence, there is a tension between those, those two things that's you know, never going to be easily resolved. But it could be in the case of Bosnia and also Kosovo that the, the real interest was the credibility of NATO, not so much the moral mission itself, which aligns with the strategic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I would accept, accept, accept that argument. Yeah, um, I mean, I guess, I mean, I think you're right that in a sense, um, one argues, and I would agree with it, that we, you know, we live in a broadly liberal international order. Um, then these types of liberal norms reflect that um, power structure. And I guess that also relates then to a 
deeper question about the nature of power. You know, power is more than simply um, material uh, power. So I think I would accept um, that that argument. Um, the first question: preventive war. Yeah. Um, I think you're right in that um, I may have overplayed the dichotomy, uh, as, it's as it were. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but on the other hand, I think I would argue that the driver behind the preventive war doctrine, certainly from the US, uh, has not been um, the humanitarian issue or humanitarian concern. The driver has been you know, a fairly defined issue of national interests in terms of terrorism and proliferation and responding to those. And that that contrast behind the key driver behind um, the humanitarian intervention uh, norm. Um, how far the two uh, coincide, I think, in practice is an interesting question. And I guess you could look at um, what NATO is trying to do in Afghanistan now as distinct from you know, the immediate operation to overthrow the Taliban after 2001. And you could argue that you see that element of convergence, that NATO is both, um, it's not a preventive war in this case, although you could argue that it is preventive to try and prevent the re-emergence of, of, of terrorism, but it's trying to combine that national interest element with um, the humanitarian element with the emphasis on peace building and nation building. Uh, and I think one of actually one of the core problems for NATO in Afghanistan at the moment is exactly that issue, that it's really trying to combine two uh, missions which are uh, perhaps competing even in some elements contradictory. And, that, and I think NATO will face a serious problem in trying to strike the balance between those two uh, different missions.
because that's an element. Now, the Bush administration may have been able to intervene in Iraq even if there was zero humanitarian interest. But when you take that part out of the coalition, I would say now that part of the coalition is gone. And what happens to public support for um, the Iraq intervention? But also, from just from a disciplinary perspective, I'm a historian, and I'm, I always like to see the evidence of what decision makers say to each other behind closed doors. And the problem with trying to figure out events as recent as those that you're dealing with is that we're unfortunately decades removed from having access to those sorts of records. I mean, I'm, I'm working, for instance, right now on um, an essay on the 1971 human rights humanitarian crisis in what became Bangladesh. I mean, there's a case in which 10 million people, 10% of the population, were, were, were forced to flee. As many as a million were killed. And as we talk about changing norms, the evidence which now is available is overwhelming that for Nixon and Kissinger, the humanitarian issue what, what didn't rank. And yet it did in the public debate in the United States. And so you know, Nixon and Kissinger set themselves at odds from what you might say were prevailing liberal norms within the United States, which brought people to sympathize with the, you know, the Bangladeshis, but didn't really change administration policy. So all of that is just by way of, you know, uh, I, I guess complicating the issue a little bit. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I mean, I, I take the point entirely that you're clearly correct that you know, states and political leaders have multiple motivations and you know one will rarely if ever find a purely uh, humanitarian um, intervention and one needs to think about the balance between those. Um, I suppose a question that I would partly put back to you but it's also a question for my own analysis here is um, if that's the case why did we see um, during the 1990s this apparent trend towards humanitarian intervention in the sense that there were many more of these interventions and humanitarianism seemed to play uh, a much higher role in the percentage terms, if you want to put it um, like that. Um, so I think that's a question, and one could argue that it was perhaps simply the end of the Cold War. The end of the Cold War, in a number of ways, liberated um, Western governments to take on these types of operations and to give greater primacy to humanitarian concerns than was the case in the end. And I suppose that, I think, then poses the question, post 9-11, are we witnessing or will we witness a shift back to what you could call the more normal pattern, where humanitarian interventions as such will be very rare uh, and humanitarianism will play only a relatively small part in the motivation behind um, interventions, uh, and I, th you know, I think that is an open question. But my argument, I think, is that part of my argument, anyway, is that these norms have gained such traction in that sense um, that the dynamic has changed. And I don't think we're simply going to witness uh, a shift back to the kind of scenario that existed before um, the 1990s. Uh, and I think also, I mean, the point about the, you know to categorise different types of interventions is maybe can be too simplistic. And I guess, you know, if you look at the UN interventions today, they're not traditional UN peacekeeping operations. They're not exactly humanitarian interventions as we saw in the 1990s. So they're a new kind of category again as well. 
Um, I mean, I think the two you mentioned are interesting because they lead in contradictory directions. I mean, you know, the obvious conclusion from the Somalia one was, you know, that the U.S. didn't want to do this again, and the U.S. public became much more uh, reluctant. From the normative perspective, the Rwanda case is interesting because I think the failure in, Ru in Rwanda drove some of this normative development in terms of things like the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty and more generally this argument that, you know, we shouldn't let this happen again. And that's, so actually kind of failure drove some of the normative development. But I mean, again, you know, you counter that argument and say, well, that, you know, these norms are very nice. But look at Darfur today. Is it that different from Rwanda? But I think, you know, I think you're right that failure also shapes norms as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think that the um, to the extent that there is some uh, more forceful intervention, or maybe this UN peacekeeping force goes in, um, the US is perhaps more likely to play. I mean, I'm not sure if my terminology is right, but a kind of backstop role in terms of being there, providing logistics, maybe providing support outside the country in neighbouring countries like uh, Chad and so on. Uh, and I think that reflects, you know, one of the broader trends identified in terms of the third trend towards Western support. You know, the U.S. and other Western countries are looking to see how can we support this without putting uh, troops on the ground ourselves. But I think, you know, that raises the basic question, is that likely to be uh, an adequate uh, response? Um, so I guess that would be my response on that. Um, I mean, it certainly plays into this. What strikes me most about the argument about the European Union as a normative power um, is that somehow the EU is very distinctive. I mean, the logic of that kind of argument implies to me that, you know, the European Union is a normative power. All or most other powers are not normative powers. 
Um, and I find that a very strange argument. I mean, I would argue that most states' foreign policies are shaped by you know, combinations of interest and power and normative um, concerns. Um, so I sometimes think that actually it's kind of strange. I mean, if you look, I think if you looked at the history of U.S. foreign policy, you could argue that there's been an ongoing struggle between, you know, power and material interests and normative concerns, and you see that cyclically. Um, having said that, I think that um, there is a case that the EU is a normative power, and if you look at the um, EU's role in these types of interventions. Um, the EU has placed a strong emphasis on uh, post-conflict peace building, the civilian uh, dimensions of in intervention, the interface between uh, military and civilian. So I think the way in which the EU is emerging as a military actor reflects the normative character of the European Union. Yes, I think that's correct. Um, I think also one of the things which has emerged from this kind of conceptual debate and things like the work of the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty is that genocide sets a very high um, boundary. If, you, you know, if one says, you know, we only intervene in cases of genocide, genocide sets a very high boundary. And if you look at the... Um, the wording of the, um, the UN World Summit document. It specifically says um, genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and ethnic cleansing, um, which I think is you know, it's very interesting. And I think the logic from that, and I think that comes from the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty, is that the, the, um, the threshold which one sets, which might then trigger intervention, shouldn't be set so high. So I think there is an argument that for international lawyers, genocide is a very specific term. Uh, and I think you would find you know, credible international lawyers who would argue that what's happened in Darfur is not genocide. I, I mean, I'm not going to take it. Sure. I mean, I, I mean, I think I would emphasize the distinction between genocide and ethnic cleansing. Uh, and I think that if you looked in former Yugoslavia, the word genocide wasn't actually used very often by UN leaders, NATO leaders, EU leaders. 
Uh, and then if you look at it specifically, of course, now in the um, International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, um, it's found it very hard to prove genocide. I mean, that was one of the issues, you know, with regard to Slobodan Milosevic before he died. Would he be proved of having committed genocide? Uh, and there's been a tendency to, to, um, to try and focus on ethnic cleansing and other crimes rather than genocide because I think genocide tends to set the boundary so, so high. Um, but I think, I think you're right that there, you know, there has been a le- combined kind of legal and linguistic development, you know, since perhaps the mid-1990s. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I would absolutely agree with that interpretation. And there have also been other uh, cases in um, Spain, uh, and in Belgium, um, people tried to take a case against um, Ariel Sharon for some of the things which he'd done kind of probably two decades back when he was Israeli defense minister more than when he was with when he was Israeli um, prime minister. And I mean, I I don't know the truth of this, but I've heard it said anecdotally just on the Kissinger case that there are now certain European countries which Henry Kissinger uh, will not travel to because he is afraid that he could face a legal case. Now, I don't know the truth of that, but (laughs) that's that's what I've heard said. Hi. Bob,
Please read you. Are you going back to court now, or are you... Um, yeah, I am, actually. I'm giving a talk for Sean tonight, and I'm heading back tomorrow. I was... Because I'm actually going to be in court next week. Oh, so all right. Perhaps we can... Yeah, absolutely. That, 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 would be, that would be great, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. has, uh, has, he's invited me over to give a lecture, and I'm 